We're going to now study his word. So if you've got a Bible or electronic version, go ahead and open that up to Proverbs chapter 3. We're in a series walking through the book of Proverbs. This is our third week in it. I'm going to read the first 12 verses, but our focus, as you'll see when you look at the outline, is mainly going to be just two verses, verse 5 and 6. But follow along, if you would, beginning in verse 1. My son, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commands, for they will bring you many days of full life and well-being. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will find favor and high regard with God and people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your paths straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing for your body and strengthening for your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. You ever think about the fact that God asks us questions in the Bible? So Jesus is God, right? And in the Gospels... Jesus repeatedly asks questions. He doesn't just answer them. He asks them. He puts his audience on the hook, and he waits for an answer. He draws them out. For example, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Or do you believe I can do this? Or to what shall I compare this generation? Or what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? He's, he's making them think. He's provoking them. He's drawing them out into into truth. And I think if we took the book of Proverbs, which is God speaking, God is the ultimate father voice, fatherly wisdom is coming from God, and we reduced it to a personal question. It might sound something like this in your notes. It's right at the top. Is the ultimate pursuit of your life leading you into peace? Is the ultimate pursuit of your life leading you into peace? You know, there are people in the world right now who are chasing everything. And you know why they're chasing it? Because they want peace. There are people in this world, maybe right here in our city, who would trade a car collection for lasting peace. They want peace. That's why in the Old Testament, the biggest thing you could possibly wish on someone is shalom, peace be with you. May his face shine upon you and give you Peace, that's the big one. That's the ultimate prize is peace with God, peace from God. And these first nine chapters of Proverbs, as we said a couple of weeks ago, there are 10 speeches from a father to a son. There are four poems from Lady Wisdom. And these speeches from a father to a son don't get wrapped up in the human authorship and miss the bigger point. God is talking. God is the father. He's taken this human father up as his voice through which he's communicating to his covenant people. And God is on his knee and he's leaning in to the church, to his people, and he's giving us guidance. He's giving us counsel. He's blessing his dear children. That's the whole framework of this book, really. And even our passage, it begins and ends with my son, my son. 
That's bracketed. So there's this, this whole feeling of affection in this text. This, this book, Proverbs, it's not about how to earn acceptance with God. Don't ask for Proverbs what you get from Romans. Proverbs doesn't live in the courtroom. It lives in the living room. It's at the kitchen table. It's, it's God the Father breathing this air of family. That's what this whole text takes place in. God isn't saying, here's how you get into the family. Do this number of things and you'll get into the family. No, it's God saying, son, I want to say some things that are going to be helpful to you. He's saying, son, this is how the world works. You resist these truths and you're going to hurt yourself. Son, listen to me. He's showing us the path that leads to life. He's showing us the path that leads to real life as defined by God himself. So what's the way to the good life? The outline's pretty straightforward. Point number one, trust completely in the Lord. Trust completely in the Lord. As you see there in verse five, trust in the Lord with all your heart. There's a kind of um, two-beat rhythm, kind of two-four tempo in this text where where you see both commands and blessings or, or counsel and incentive. It's back and forth, one after another. One is never without the other one. So it's one, two, back and forth. So look, for example, at verse one. Here's a command. Don't forget my teaching. And then there's a promise. There's incentive in verse two. For they will bring you, and look at what it brings, many days, full life. And this is the Hebrew word shalom, well-being. So you're going to get peace, wholeness. You listen to my teaching, don't forget my teaching, and you experience fullness of life, a magnificent life, well-being and shalom. And all these commands and incentives, they're grounded in this one chief overarching command, which is in our text, verse 5, trust in the Lord. It's all about a relationship with the Lord. The book of Proverbs is not as contrary to how some read it. You know, if you just skip and sort of parachute straight into chapter 10, where there's all these sayings, kind of life wisdom nuggets, if you just drop straight into chapter 10, it almost feels like it's a secular book in some ways. Like you can just kind of drop in in chapter 10, pick up some truths that can apply to the way that you run your business, and then get out of there without God. That, that's not how Proverbs was written. And, and God stuck nine chapters of introduction to get in the way of us just thinking that these are just fortune cookies he breaks open for the world and everybody can get whatever they want and get out of there fast. No, you don't get anything apart from chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can't even begin the journey. Don't even read chapter 10 and beyond if you're not willing to come humbly underneath the rule and blessing of the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Israel's covenant God. And the Lord is all over our text. Verse 5, 7, 9, 11, 12, 19, 26, 32, 33. It's not letting us forget. All of this orbits around this relationship with the Lord that makes everything active and makes all these these things possible. There are, if you count them up, over 20 commands in chapter 3, over 20 exhortations about, about what it looks like to trust the Lord. 
And I think that's a helpful way to put it because isn't that exactly where the problem is? What does it look like to trust the Lord? If I ask you, do you trust the Lord? What are you supposed to say? Are you supposed to say, is everybody here supposed to say, yes, I do? Is everybody supposed to say, no, I don't, and I need to? What, it, what does it mean? And if you said yes or no, why did you say it? What did it mean for you, right? It can be a pretty squishy question. Do you trust the Lord? And so I think at that point, it's helpful to think about human relationships. And Proverbs lives in human relationships, so it's always using and leveraging that analogy. So think about human relationships. This is in your notes. When we trust someone, we are confident in their reliability and assured of their good intentions. Right? Isn't that kind of what it's like when you have a trusting relationship with another person? You're confident in their reliability and assured of their good intentions. Let's fill in that next one while we're there. When we lack trust, so on the other side of it, when we lack trust, we question motives. When we lack trust, there's kind of this, this cloud of suspicion, this fog of suspicion that looms over the relationship at all times, right? My, um, my mom's great aunt, her name was Aunt Ollie, and she made life interesting for us as kids in the Mason house because she had, um, she had financial struggles at one point. When I was really young, like six or seven, she had financial struggles, and so my dad often in cases like this said, come live with us. So Aunt Ollie moved into our house for a time, and I'm just kind of looking, sizing her up. I hadn't known her before, but she comes moving into the house. And if you've seen Emperor's New Groove, Yzma, picture Yzma, that's kind of how I saw her through my seven, six-year-old eyes, is she was just this, this woman who's now in our house. She's impossibly old. She, um, she's got this, this deep, sort of wispy, paper-thin voice from decades of chain smoking. And... Um, and here she is, right? And so dad says, there, Aunt Ollie, we're, we're glad you're here. There are some things you can't do. You can't smoke in the house. You can go in the backyard if you need to do that. And, uh, you know, my mom says to me that late in Aunt Ollie's life, before she, before she died, she came to a clear uh, profession of faith in Jesus Christ. I praise God for that. But when she lived in our house, it wasn't there. And it was fairly obvious. She, she was a pathological liar. She was dishonest. She lied when she didn't even have to, when there were no stakes in it. She just lied just to lie, right? And so, um, you know, she would tell me. She, dad would leave. Mom would leave. And she'd light up. And she'd say, don't tell your dad, right? And so then dad would come home. And he'd say, Aunt Ollie, did you, uh, were you smoking? It smells like smoke in here. She'd say, no. And then dad would call me aside in my room. And he'd say, did she smoke? And I'd say, yes, sir. <laughs> It's kind of like that was that little season of time with, with Aunt Ollie. Lying was her default setting. My dad used to say, Aunt Ollie lies up one side and down the other. That was kind of his, his way of talking, right? But here's the thing. You know, one of the, one of the rules in that season of time when she lived with us was uh, if Aunt Ollie's in the house, one of the older, you know, one of the parents has to be in the house or your older sister. Me and my brother were very young. Your older sister can be in the house, but Aunt Ollie, you cannot be in the house just with the younger boys. There's rules, right? There's different rules that were laid out for her, which is just the sort of thing you do when you can't trust somebody, right? You watch them like a hawk. You've got all these rules in place and people looking in on them, right? On the other hand, so imagine a different scenario. Imagine, contrary to that, you've got two close friends. Y'all always hang together, kind of the three musketeers. You come in a pack They've got keys to your house or your apartment, and they can just come in. They just, 
They just unlock the door, come in, say, we're here. They open your fridge up and they break into the guac, right? They're just, you've got a close relationship. There's nothing strange about that. They're your friends. And it's that level of relationship. Let's say, let's say one day the two of them come up, they use the key, they unlock the door, they come in. They didn't announce that they were coming. And, and you didn't even hear them come in. Maybe you're doing laundry in the laundry room and then you can hear them kind of laughing in the kitchen and you come into the kitchen and there they are. And you don't think, where are my valuables? How long have they been here? What have they been into, right? They're, you're not asking, where did I leave my wallet? You're, you're not asking any of those questions, why? Because you trust them. The difference between those two stories is in one case you don't trust them, in another you do. So what about God? Do you trust in the Lord with all your heart? Let's, let's turn that a little bit. What about when he shows up unexpectedly? What about when he colors outside the lines? What about when he does something you weren't prepared for? What about when there's a gap in your understanding of why he's on the scene and what he just did? Do you, when there's a gap in your understanding, do you plug trust into the gap or do you plug suspicion into the gap? Do you start asking, huh, wonder what he, I wonder what he's up to. I wonder how long he's been here. Where are my valuables right now? Now that he's here, let me just check and make sure everything's safe. Here's the thing. You know, it's easy to say, right? It's easy to say, I trust you, Lord. It's easy to sing, I surrender. I trust you, Lord. But, but when he does something different than what we hoped for, it's so often, if you're like me, it so often becomes clear that what we really meant when we said, I trust you, Lord, is I trust you with these plans that I've drawn up for you. For you to implement in your own sovereign timing, a.k.a. by the end of summer, right? So there's, there's fine print. There's, there's stipulations. And then if it doesn't happen the way that we presented our plans to him, our enemy goes to work, doesn't he? And he gets in your ear. What are some of Satan's favorite things to say to you when life didn't turn out the way that you thought it would or your prayer wasn't answered in the timing that you thought it would be answered. And, and he gets in your ear and he says the kinds of things that maybe he's been saying to some of you this week. You know what? Hate to tell you this, God has forgotten you. You've been praying about this how long? Over a year. Wow. It's amazing. He's still not on the scene. Where, pray tell, has he been? What more important things has he been giving himself to than this thing that sent your world upside down? He doesn't care about your cries. Let's just tell it the way it is. He doesn't care. He's one more narcissist in a world that's glutted with him. Your world is filled with people like this. He's all about that control, but he doesn't care about your best interest. He doesn't care about what you're going through. He can't be trusted to lead you to what's best for your life. And what happens, he's in our ear, and what can sometimes happen is we find ourselves joining in, right? We find ourselves humming the same music they were humming around the forbidden tree in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And what, what was that? It was Adam and Eve saying, okay, I need you to tell me exactly why I can't have this. What are you hiding behind your back? Because it seems like this is a, quite a beautiful thing, pleasant to the eyes. Tell me exactly why this isn't good for me right now. I need an answer. So much of our relationship with God, you just think about it, centers on whether or not we trust him. Especially 
when we don't have all the information, especially when we don't know the whys and the wherefores, when he hasn't shown us the blueprints of the universe, especially in moments like that, which leads to the next admonition. It's this. Do not lean on your own understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding. The Christian Standard Bible translates it. Do not rely on your own understanding. You know, sometimes this verse uh, has been used, maybe still is used, to, to urge Christians into a kind of mysticism, kind of turn off your intellect, don't rely on this up here, don't think, don't be practical, right? Just kind of turn that off and go with your gut instincts and be intu- spiritually intuitive, kind of just have your antenna up, but don't think actively, that your mind is just getting in the way. And that's not what this verse is telling us to do. Um, Hannah Whittall Smith was a well-known writer, Quaker author, and Christian mystic in the late 1800s. She eventually became a universalist. Um, But in any case, she wrote a number of things, and she wrote approvingly of a friend that she had, and this was her friend's regiment. Each morning, having consecrated the day to the Lord as she woke, as soon as she woke, would then ask the Lord whether she was to get up or not, and would not stir till the voice told her to dress. As she put on each article, she asked the Lord whether she was to put it on. And very often the Lord would tell her to put on the right shoe and leave off the other. And it just goes on and just gets stranger and stranger and stranger. Look, friends, don't, when he says don't rely on your own understanding, it doesn't mean be as weird as you possibly can and live the Christian life that way. You know, wait for strange sensations before you decide you're supposed to put pants on before you head out into the world. No, put the pants on. It's in the Bible. It's somewhere in the Bible you're supposed to do that, right? We can be confident of these things. Don't rely on your own understanding as something else. Eugene Peterson was a, was a master and an authority in Semitic languages. Here's how simply he rendered don't rely on your own understanding. His words, don't try to figure everything out on your own. Don't try to figure everything out on your own, and this is in your notes. This passage doesn't confirm our culture's doctrine of self-trust. The prevailing winds of our culture are, you know, the only one who's after your best interest is you. You're the only one who really knows which way is up. So when, when people don't like or they cross your intentions or they correct or, or adjust your perspective, they're haters. Lock them outside. Go with your instinct. Trust yourself. Friends, the Bible holds up before us a different way than the things that we're hearing from our culture around us. We have access to God's voice. (laughs) It's why we preach the Bible every Sunday. It's why we encourage you, all of you, to be in God's word throughout the week. We got 66 books of flawless truth, timeless relevant, sufficient truth, 66 books of the true knowledge of God, 66 books of the knowledge of yourself and the world, 66 books of moral instruction, 66 books of timely counsel when you're hurting and when you're struggling, 66 books that ultimately point to the one true hope of the world, Jesus Christ. Why would we go with our gut? God has spoken. Once and for all, we know this is gold standard. Every word of it can be trusted. Why would we run with our intuition when God is talking right here? 
He's talking to us. And what's he talking about? Everything that matters, <laughs> literally everything that matters most is right here, and God is talking about it. That's why we want to give this book to the Baloch. Because we know you get this, your life changes. You hear his voice, your life is changing. But, but here's, here's the rub. What happens when there's a conflict between the clear teaching of Scripture and something you want or something that you believe? Because it, it doesn't, you think about it, it doesn't count as submission to God's Word if you were going to do it already. Right? That's incidental contact. That's... Um, that's accidental. It's not real intentional from the heart submission. We had a, a beagle a couple years ago. She died. Bailey was her name. She was a beagle, which I think in the original language means disobedient and um, driven by her appetites, like enslaved to her appetite. And we probably sometimes thought she was obeying. I'm not sure. Occasionally, Bailey agreed with us. I'm not sure in retrospect she actually ever obeyed us. You know, we could say the whole family could get into the car and we could say, Bailey, come on, come on. And she would jump up into the car and we would say, good dog. She wasn't a good dog. She smelled potato chips. <laughs> like, it was, it was incidental. It looked like obedience. It was her on the hunt. She smelled it. It's back there. She climbs over the seat. There it is. You hear her crunching back there in the back seat. She found a Frito that's been down there for who knows how long. She's motivated by something else. So here's the question for us. Do you just merely agree with the Bible or do you obey it? You submit your thoughts to God's thoughts, your ideas to God's truth. Do, do you let the Bible overrule your thinking? Author and teacher Jackie Hill Perry was giving a talk on something that's called often complementarianism, the distinctive roles between men and women in the home and in the church. And she appealed, she knew these were not popular ideas, and so she appealed to her audience right at the beginning and said this, I want to caution you against having a cynical attitude toward the Word of God. You know if there is cynicism in you, it's because you've been believing the world a bit too long. You've been gleaning ideas from people whose views are at odds with the God who made you. I love this prayer. Beg God to unveil your eyes to make his word be something beautiful to you. Oh, what a humble prayer that is, to come to whatever is the next chapter in the Bible, whatever it is, Lord, this says, make it beautiful to me. Let me receive it as from you. Solomon puts it this way, verse 5, don't rely on your own understanding. Verse 7, don't be wise in your own eyes. And what's the alternative in verse 7? Fear the Lord. Instead of thinking you're all that, trust him. Trust his word. The way of wisdom, friends, is none other than the way of humility before God. The next point is this. In all your ways, know him. In all your ways, know Know him. It, it means, it's, it's the word, Hebrew word yada. It, it, it's translated when, when it says, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. It's the same word. It has to do with this intimate, close knowledge, the closest possible knowledge. It's highly relational. It's not stats and facts. It's deep connection. So he's saying, in all your ways, 
Be connected relationally. Be aware of him at all times. Acknowledge him in all of your ways. You imagine, imagine soldiers kind of milling about in a room with other soldiers. And one, some of them are throwing darts and others are playing pool. And they're just having fun and talking and that sort of thing. And then a ranking officer walks into the room and what happens? Everybody drops the pool sticks. Everybody looks. They don't just nod in his direction and keep throwing darts. Everything stops and they salute. They're acknowledging this one is different than the rest of us. The most important person has walked into the room. It's not another soldier. It's a ranking officer. They're acknowledging a different relationship is here and we're pointing to our awareness of that fact. I think that that illustration in some ways is helpful. In other ways, it, it loses some of its force because the acknowledgement is obligatory. So bring it over into marriage, for example. My wife, Paula, and I have been married for 23 years. All these years later, if she walks into a room, any room, this room, a restaurant, walks into our house, there is an automatic, instinctive, non-obligatory acknowledgement. It doesn't matter what the room is. If I see her in the room, she just became the most important person in the room. And she knows it. That doesn't mean that, you know, we lock eyes and there becomes this really gushing, syrupy moment and we're running in slow motion toward each other. And there's me. It's, not, it's not that, right? We've been married long enough. It's not puppy love. We know what, we know what we're into. We know the depth of the relationship. But but it's there. That's the reality. There's an acknowledgement. There's an awareness. You're here now. You're here. Even take that further. Even when she's not in the room, because we're married and because we're joined by God, there's a constant awareness. No matter what room I'm in, no matter what room she's in, no matter who's in the room, there's a constant awareness of the marriage of her. It's, in other words, marriage isn't a compartment in my life that I activate on my way home from the office. It's a constant acknowledgement. In all my ways, in all my places, I'm aware. I'm acknowledging. So bring that over. If you trust in the Lord, it means wherever you are, whatever room you're in, whoever else is with you, the Lord is the most important person in the room. Whatever you're doing and whatever you're saying is acknowledging him in that special relationship. He's there and you're acknowledging him in the way that you act. What, let me ask you this question. What would change in your life if in every location you acknowledged the presence and authority of Christ? How might your week look different in that scenario? So for example, late tonight, late tonight and it's just you and you got your phone on and you've got infinite options before you with your phone and yet in that moment you acknowledge the Lord is here. I'm aware of his presence. I'm aware of his goodness and your heart is saying to him as it were, Lord, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I acknowledge you. I acknowledge your goodness. I acknowledge your promises to satisfy me. You are here. Or maybe tomorrow you're in the kitchen and there's a heated conversation breaking out between you and a member of your family. 
and you've got an array of options. They've been available to you before, and you've utilized an array of options. You've got the option to manipulate and go and win this thing by manipulation. You've got the shock and awe option. <laughs> you have the raise your voice in anger and win this thing that way, twist them in the wind, whatever. You've got multiple tools in the tool bag of how to win this moment. And then there's this other way that emerges. Acknowledge in all your ways and in all your places, including this kitchen right now, the Lord is here. And what is the Lord like? The Lord whose wisdom is peaceable and gentle, not vicious and demanding and biting. The Lord who has treated me with kindness, even when he disciplines me, he treats me with kindness. That Lord is here. I'm saluting, I'm acknowledging he's present This leads to the next point. What we know about the Lord leads to a life that deeply trusts him. All of this begs the question, do we know the Lord? What do we know about him? This is why the Bible, above everything, is introducing you to God. God is the protagonist. God is the hero. This book is... More than it's a mirror for you to see yourself, it's a window for you to see into heaven. It's a window for you to see your triune, awesome, resplendent, glorious God and be changed as you behold him from glory to glory, moment by moment, degree by degree. So this is why you have in your word this God-centered book. Where are you going to turn? As it were, it's almost as though God is saying to you and saying to me as I engage his word, he's saying, what are you going to turn to? Who are you going to turn to? Hey, Matt, you need a rock beneath your feet in a moment like this. Let me put this right here for you. Stand here. And he speaks to us through his all-sufficient word, and he says things like, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There, stand on that. That's not going to move. All the other stuff is moving around you. That's not going to move. You can stand right there. Christian friend, If you've been bombarded by the enemy this week and attacked by his lies, hear the truth this morning. God is not against you. God is not out to hunt you down for your harm. He is pursuing you to do you good all your days and into eternity. In all your ways, know him. What do you know about the Lord? Do you know what he is? Do you know what he's like? Do you know he's a God of truth? He cannot lie. He is incapable of lying. He can't ever be untrue to his word. Every word he's spoken will come to pass. He's a God of truth. He's a God of justice. So if you've suffered evil at the hands of someone else, you can rest assured that that evil will be answered by God. He's a God of compassion. If you want to find Jesus in the Gospels, look for the people with broken hearts. And there he unfailingly, he's with them. There's that group of people brokenhearted, living in a fallen world. And there he is again. Jesus just loves being with these people. He's a compassionate Savior. He's a God of mercy. There's not a sin you've ever committed that he can't forgive. You might say, Matt, you don't know what I've been into. You have no idea how deep it gets. You have no idea how far I've run from God. Friend, with all due respect, you have no idea how long the reach of his mercy is through the cross. It is glorious. None knows how long his reach is. 
never seen the end of it. There's no darkness that can prevent him from finding you. There's no shame that would make him run in the opposite direction from you. Even your suspicious thoughts about his intentions in your hour of affliction don't change his loving intentions. How good is this? Like no one else in the world, friends, Jesus can be trusted. And the clearest evidence of this is we know the gospel. The God who comes and dies in your place and absorbs the justice that was due to you and me for our sins, the God who comes and dies in your place has earned your trust. It makes sense for you to trust someone who died for you. That's why Paul says He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give you all things? It makes sense for you to trust, and that's not a leap into irrationality. It makes perfect sense for us to trust Jesus Christ, the one who bled for us. Trust completely in the Lord. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him, acknowledge him, and then here's the promise. What a promise. And he will make your paths straight. He will make your paths straight. I love that the blessing that's held out by the Lord in this text is that he will put us on a straight path. This straight path is the very same one that Jesus the Lord is talking about when he talks about the narrow path in the Gospels that leads to eternal life. It's the same path. It's the same Lord. And we find out, you keep reading, so here it just calls him the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then we get into the New Testament. In the fullness of time, we find out the Lord's name. So Jesus, in Philippians chapter 2, he comes and he humbles himself. He's obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. God highly exalts him and gives him the name that's above every name. Wait for it. The name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the one in Proverbs chapter 3. He's the one in whom we trust. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we learn. Trust in the God who came and took on flesh, the one who died the death that you deserve to die, the one who rose and walked out of the empty tomb three days later and gives life and lasting peace to all who believe. Trust in that Lord. I gotta ask you the question again. What are you into right now? Is it leading you to peace? Because this text opens wide the gate and says, come in here, get you some peace. Get it from the Lord. He's waiting to give it to you. The the vision of this passage isn't a pain-free life, but one lived under the blessing and lordship of Jesus. The blessing and lordship of Jesus. And we could emphasize lordship, but this text emphasizes blessing. My goodness, look at the incentives held out by the Father to this son. We're going to put them up here on the screen for you. Many days, full life and well-being, favor with God and people, healing for your body and strengthening for your bones, barns filled and new wine flowing, long life, honor and true riches, feet that don't stumble into the traps of the enemy. You can sleep at night not having to look over your shoulder, blessing on your home from the Lord, grace rather than judgment. The Lord publicly honors you. If that's where the path is leading, who doesn't want on that path? 
You'd have to be crazy to not want on that path. Look, this passage, friends, don't miss it. It is dripping with promise, dripping with reward. What could be more inviting than for the Lord himself to stand at the pathway and say, trust in me, and all of this starts coming in your direction and coming into your life. The author here, the human author, is reaching for every metaphor he can find, every word picture available to his mind to say to his son, hey, son, trust me, you get this, you get it all. He's given you the store. He's giving everything. You get this stuff, you get a life that's worth living. You get this stuff, you get a magnificent life. You get the stuff that matters. You get the stuff that endures. That's why Martin Luther said 500 years ago, Deus meum et omnia, Latin for God is mine, everything is mine. God is the gospel. Christ is the gospel. We're not going to avoid hardship. That's the reality. We're not going to avoid hardship. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. It's going to happen. He didn't promise a pain-free life. But here's the point. It's in your notes. The problems that come with obeying Jesus are better than the problems that come with foolishness. Choose the problems that come with obeying Jesus. Don't choose the problems that come with foolishness. Trust in the Lord. So how do we bring this home? Three very brief exhortations. Three things to do with this. Number one, read the word. Read the word. If I had to commend to you one life-changing practice, it would be prayerful, slow, reflective reading of the word of God. That will change your life. Get, get a Bible reading plan. Get into God's word every day. This is how you practice verse one. Verse one says, don't forget my teaching. How are you going to not forget it? You keep reading it. You keep listening. You put this on like headphones and you keep listening. What did the father say about this? What did he say about this? Chapter after chapter, you're listening. You're not forgetting what he's saying. Read the word too. Practice community. That's why we do small groups. We believe in you having community, all of us needing community because of Eugene Peterson's rendering of that verse. Don't try to figure everything out on your own. God designed the local church in a way that we get stronger together, not alone, not in isolation. We get stronger together. We patiently help one another. We, we learn from each other. It's what we're meant to do. That's how we get stronger. Read the word, practice community, and finally... Don't forget the benefits. Don't forget the benefits. I look at this passage and it just fuels me for endurance. You know what this passage says to me? I, it's, it's as though I hear God himself in his words saying to me, hey, hey, Matt, this is the good life. This, this is it. Life with God is the good life. Life with, with a father who loves you. Life with the Son who died for you. Life with the Spirit who lives in you and empowers you for every good work into the future. Life to the full and more fullness is coming. That life, what are you into? And is it leading you into that kind of peace, that kind of magnificent life? This passage, friends, is laden with gifts. It sounds like it's just commands. For every command, there's blessing. There's incentive. It's not barking orders. It's not on a power trip. It's Christmas in Proverbs 3. 
It's just unloading armfuls of peace, fullness, well-being, life, happiness, confidence, courage, generosity, friendship of God. It's all for you. Who wants in? Trust the Lord. Come get it. You don't have to qualify. That's why Jesus came. Do you you want the good life? The real good life, not not the cardboard standee that this culture props up and you can blow it over because it doesn't last. It's temporal peace with no staying power. Do do you want the real good life? Do Do you want it? It's available. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and you're on your way. Let's go there together. 